The Good Nature Podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Natured, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. Hi, Julia. Hey, Sophia. This week on the podcast, I am really excited to announce that we're going to be speaking to Tom Bailey. Tom is a theatre maker and director based in Bristol, and he started an award-winning theatre company called Mechanimal, which is a very good pun, but also produces very innovative and cool theatre. A lot of their pieces are about nature. And obviously, we are super thrilled to have Tom, also because that's the first time we have an artist on the podcast. And we're really keen on showcasing how everyone can be a conservationist. So we were really keen on showing how the approaches to conservation can be through different mediums. And it's really cool that we can talk to Tom about this. And also, I think Sophia mentioned already that Mechanimal does lots of really cool, innovative theatre. And they do lots of big variety of nature-themed pieces. So I'm sure Tom will tell us a bit more about each of them during the interview. But just to give you an idea, he's done some work on transformation of the Arctic. He also did some work on bird migration, but also human migration, which was obviously a very big theme a few years ago. So I'm really keen to hear more about his work in general. So just to give you an idea of the type of reviews he's got for his work so far, The New Scientist has called his work extraordinary and The Guardian has called some of his pieces remarkable and urgent. He also got quite an amusing review from somebody who said that she would never thought she would be so engrossed by watching a man pretending to be a marsh warbler. And a marsh warbler is a type of bird. I came across Tom at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is a really big theatre festival when I was there last year. And I was doing this thing where I was going through the program and just trying to watch every show that had to do with nature or conservation. And I came across his show called Vigil. And I was really stunned by it when I went to watch it. It was an incredibly impressive kind of performance art piece. And that's not usually my kind of genre within theatre, I would say. But it was just a really incredible show. And the reason that I really liked it was that it was this combination of a scientific concept, which is the IUCN Red List, which is a list which is used by conservationists to understand the extinction risk to different species. And so he took this scientific concept and then combined it with performance art theatre. It really was not what I would have expected when I walked in, but I just think it's one of the best things that theatre can do to maybe make us reflect and emotionally connect with something that as simple as a list. And also for me, one thing that is quite interesting is the fact that I've seen lots of arts surrounding conservation, but I've seen mostly artists such as photographers and filmmakers or illustrators. I've never really seen much theater, well, nature-based theater 
And actually, I think my only experience of theatre and conservation was watching an improv show that Sophia produced last year. So I'm really curious to hear a bit more about what other types of theatre can be done. I can definitely confirm that it's a very rare combination. I mean, the Edinburgh Fringe has thousands and thousands of shows. And I was able to go to most of the, you know, within a few days, I was able to go to most of the ones that seemed to fit the bill of being about nature or conservation. So generally, I think it isn't being done that much at the moment, but it is being done more and more. And I think that people are getting really excited about the ways that theatre and conservation can combine. And I just think it's like an area that is so full of potential. So I'm really excited to hear about how Tom approaches his projects. So let's just talk to him. Hi, Tom. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. We've been really keen on talking to artists on the podcast. So that's really brilliant that we've got you. And I guess one way to start today's episode would be for you to tell us a bit more about, you know, were you always passionate about theatre and the natural world or how did those interests emerge for you and how did you start to combine them? Theatre and the natural world in terms of, I guess, interests for me. Theatre probably came first in terms of I, I started doing the kind of standard youth theatre, school theatre thing in your teenage years. But then I went and read English at university and then started reading, I remember very clearly it was one book that really got me involved in what's going on in nature today. And that was uh, James Lovelock's The Revenge of Gaia, which was a huge wake up call for me in my second year of university. And basically, I, I sort of felt like um, personally, I wanted to shelve all kind of like theater plans and plans for maybe training further in literature or theater to kind of do something about or involved in climate change and so i finished my degree and then i took a master's in looking at how climate science was communicated through language and reportage i mean how was this very disturbing climate science meeting the public sphere in authors like james lovelock tim flannery people like that and so so did that and then i think tried for a few years to get involved more strongly in climate activism and conservation roles i found that with an english degree kind of i got pushed towards sort of media related roles writing related roles to do with conservation and sustainability and i got to a point where after a couple of years i, I just felt that actually it wasn't really that fulfilling for me and and the best way that i felt that i could respond to this uh, crisis of climate change was to kind of go back to my first passion and which is theater um and start making theater in response to climate change and so i guess that's what i did it took a, a little while to sort of retrain in in theater and then at some point in my mid-twenties, I started making theatre for, for proper. And um, I guess over the last eight or so years, I've been um, creating theatre that more and more has explored aspects of climate change. Not exclusively, but predominantly. And that's where the passion has, has kind of come from, really. It's always interesting to see actually how different interests kind of merge together or how the different routes you take before reaching 
what you want it to do. We had lots of guests who talked about retraining, so it's always really interesting to hear those backstories. I certainly found that I felt that our education system here in the UK pushes you into making choices very early and limit possibilities. For example, quite early on, you're basically asked to choose between science and arts. And it's that's maybe in terms of our cultural, broader cultural division between science and arts. Um, uh, maybe that has something to do with the with the ed- education system and the choices that we're asked to make at a at a young age when things aren't necessarily clear for us. I guess I guess at some point you're asked to choose: Are you going to be a scientist, or are you going to you going to not be? You're going to be something else. Well, you're talking to the right people. I mean, I I definitely kind of bounce back and forth a lot between science and then different types of art. And I think that, yeah, it's unacknowledged just how much they can inform each other. What inspires you when you're starting to develop a nature-based show? What kinds of materials or practices do you draw on? Good, Good question. So I guess it's very different for me in terms of each particular show. So nature... A nature-based show can, can well, for me, take many, many different forms. And I think just to kind of give listeners an overview, I've, I've made work that explores genetics. I've made work that explores migration in both humans and birds. I made a show last year that explored mass extinction and species extinction. And I'm currently making work that or one project that is exploring the current transformation of the Arctic, and another one that is looking at copper mining and mining more broadly, extraction more broadly. So I guess the nature nature shows that I make are, are very different in both form and and content. In terms of what inspires me, it can be a a, 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 a number of things. Sometimes it's it's I mean, for instance, in the extinction show, it was it was the fact of the sixth mass extinction and that just kind of stayed with me for a long time and I wanted to make a kind of response to that so it, it in terms of the inspiration it tends to be a, a fact or a, a, a happening that's going on for instance the mass migration movements of people happening in well still happening but uh, more notably happening in Europe a few years ago that was really sort of playing on my mind. So it tend, tends to be kind of things I see happening now that, that I feel are really pressing issues around nature and the way that society and people understand and connect with what we call the natural world. And I try to just tap into that area and see what see what kind of work I want to make. It's very diverse. You've worked on lots of different issues, but you mentioned uh, topics such as, you know, the extinction crisis or mining. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about in what ways you consider yourself a conservationist, an activist or an environmentalist. And to what extent do you want to elicit action in your audiences? Because these topics are topics that often can be quite on the activism side of things. Yeah, for sure. Again, a really, really good question. In terms of what I want people to to feel and do I want to inspire activism? I mean, I so I, I come from the the kind of political orientation, let's say, that urgent action needs to happen uh, in regards to climate change, not just 
climate change, but the whole way that humans are going about viewing and treating and destroying the natural world. I mean, a whole just system change, but mind change, everything change needs to happen. And so that that kind of underpins my work. I, I think I'm more exploring the artwork as not necessarily something that is trying to do the same thing as say an extinction rebellion protest i think i think i i i i see the work of art doing something different or offering a different space to audiences or at least the work of theater because i i guess it's a classic thing if you go to the theater or go and see a experience a work of art and and it, and it's it's sort of like message drum banging. It's political drum banging. That tends to turn audiences off. We tend to kind of switch off as audiences if we're not given that space, that freedom to interpret, that freedom of inquiry as as audiences. And so my approach is to generally invite people into more of a space of meditation and inquiry and hopefully curiosity and empathy but i think i'm not ever trying to give any messages or ex- say explicit things my f- general focus is to get to ask people to offer a space to people to look closer at what is happening and when we do that then we, I, I feel that is perhaps most helpful in the context of what is happening uh, today in uh, terms of climate change. Uh, am I a conservationist? Yes, in that, in that I, I want to <laughs> help as much biodiversity continue to live and grow and proliferate as I can with the work that I do. I really love the idea of giving people space and freedom. That's a brilliant concept. It makes a lot of sense. When I went to watch your show, I found that I was really struck by it because I'm a PhD student. I work in a lab where we deal with conservation issues in a scientific way a lot of the time. And for me, the red list, you know, the IUCN red list, which you featured in your show, gets a concept to me that we hear about all the time, think about all the time. But maybe don't connect with emotionally very much but when I went to your show and I was sitting there I was really emotionally overwhelmed and struck by the force of it. So in this show you embodied a series of endangered animals and plants. How did you decide how to present a given animal and how did it feel to impersonate them? What's kind of struck me and the creative team because I don't make I don't at all make stuff alone is is the fact that where here here is something very scientific that is used by conservationists and scientists every day but at its core are these animal names uh, or species names sorry and the, many of these names we found or at least the the english versions of the names very moving and poetic and the more that we looked at constellations of names the more we realize that there's almost like a you could make a story through names and so very quickly just out of the the simplicity of like showing name after name we create a a sort of little game a little story 
that obviously the more and more names that come it's the the, the tragedy of the the situation of a species extinction starts to become clear and it goes the, the show starts from a, a perhaps a, a fun and inquisitive place towards a, a sense of trying to understand or comprehend the scale of species extinction and it's for us more about realizing a limit of impersonation very early on in the space of the show so uh, the guy on stage tries to embody a deer a mantis but there were all sorts of questions about anthropocentrism and even like the ethics of impersonating other species and so for about 75 percent of that show the guy is kind of almost given up on the game of intruthful impersonation it, it becomes very quickly a game of almost like slapstick oh here's a here's a silly name well that sort of suggests this shape here's another name that sort of suggests this shape and bit by bit until about the last 20 minutes of the of the show he uses less and less of his body until for the last quarter of the show he doesn't use his body to respond to the species at all it's just a case of watching so i don't i won't claim to have have gone on any amazing animal studies journey through my body into embodying those species because there is a really strong part of actor training in you know physical theater schools that is about animal studies and and really closely observing a, a lemur or something and then creating a character from that and that's an amazing skill and process in itself but our our show wanted to ask questions about the very the very gesture of impersonating or representing other species at a time like this that makes a lot of sense i remember sitting there and just one of the realizations that i had i don't know how far into the show but it was just like oh my god conservation is not actually about the animals conservation is about our ideas of the animals and the things that we deem important or valuable or funny or charming or even just vaguely interesting I'll add plants as well. Plants are important, Sophia. <laughs> Sorry, yes, and plants. Obviously, everyone cares about plants too. Yeah, but but that but that but that but I think you've hit you've hit the nail on the head there. Like in terms of, it's all about, you know, what what values we put on certain species, and I guess in the world of conservation, well, how much how much effort is given towards conserving that particular animal? For instance, you know, it it was often for us about picking out the exciting names in the IUCN red list it tends to be the the charismatic species and and then there's the whole swathe of 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 species going extinct or that are extinct that have had no media representation or no focus or no study whatsoever and we wanted to try and not just focus on charismatic species but start to look at bringing that question about what makes a species worth saving or caring about or even connecting with so you know we just came in the icn red list across vast vast lists of grasshoppers and so we wanted to go through all i think 80 what 80 include all 81 grasshoppers in a single list but then you know only a certain percentage of the names in the red list have uh, an English name given to it otherwise it's just a, a Latin scientific name and just at the very end of the show we try to present 
all the names, both Latin and, and English, in, in one go at the end of the show, like a sort of like war memorial style list. I'm just curious, Tom, about the fact that we're talking about extinction here, which can be quite a negative topic, obviously, because we're talking about species that are disappearing. But so in when you look at conservation in general, what would you say makes you optimistic about the future of nature? Nature's pretty strong, and no matter what happens in terms of this climate changing if we take a very, very broad look, you know, nature will find a way. Nature will find a way with or without us as humans um, to create and proliferate, whether that's in the immediate future or a long, long way into the future. So that for me is, a well, a, on one side, a pessimistic thought, but on the other side, a comforting thought. I mean, I think you guys are doing a great and bold thing because some of the conservationists I spoke to in the research for this, it's almost like there are virtually no positive stories in this topic of conservation. Well, that was a message that came across to me. It's very, very hard to see a really positive, good story that gives us like real cause for hope coming out of looking at conservation is really hard because there's so much species loss, so much uh, territory loss and land loss and i think um i don't know as 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 an artist it's it's really hard for me to say like what are my thoughts about um positivity or hope i think it's it's about connecting to the small stories of people doing great things to try and protect species and protect spaces in a way connecting to small narratives of hope because the grand narrative the grand story is quite depressing and one that is is currently going one way right now just speaking more generally about theatre and conservation what opportunities does the union of theatre and conservation create and what makes the combination powerful personally i i so I, i love to work a lot with researchers in the work that I do that's been a part of the of the process by which I work for quite a long time I you know I don't I don't claim to be doing scientific research or be a scientist and equally I don't claim to be communicating science I'm always quite clear about that in the work that I do um, and clear to the researchers that I work with that I'm as coming to an artist in this project not to communicate the science the key the key thing is is finding the right researchers who who can help me make the piece so uh, i don't tend to dig into scientific papers because i find that for me as a theater maker the best way that i connect with people and research is through conversation Scientific papers, of course, important and interesting, but for me, it's partly about the, the the research and the ideas themselves, but as much about the researcher and the researcher's opinions and getting to know someone. So theatre is an art form of community and liveness and empathy. And so what theatre can maybe bring to the table is is those things and if those things can help a wider public engage with the aims of conservation and engage uh, yeah more broadly with the natural world then 
theatre can hopefully be a really exciting way of getting people involved and sharing stories about about nature. You've mentioned already that you collaborate with lots of people, be it you know researchers, land managers. We know that you also collaborate with choreographers, composers. What do you learn from working with others in the process of creating a show? Yeah, wow, I learn a lot each on different projects. So, so just to be clear again to listeners, I, I make devised theatre work, which is very different to a lot of the kind of theatre that we normally go and see. So with my work, I basically don't have a script. I, I start from ideas and effectively I improvise a lot with those ideas and make a lot of mistakes and make a lot of wrong turns and gradually bit by bit find out what the piece of theatre is. I guess in a nutshell, what I learned from working in this context from other people is that you've got to find your allies in terms of people who share your vision and my, my desire for a long long form process. And I think more and more I, I learned to really try and listen to other people and, and, and the, the more creative dialogue can go on between different ideas the more fruitful the process will be for everyone and creative it will be for everyone uh, that's definitely something we've heard from other guests as well the importance of learning from your mistakes and we could stay here all day talking to you because that's been super interesting so far but we're gonna have to wrap up so i think sophia has a final question for you Yep, so we have one question left. This is a question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and it's a tough one. If you were to choose one organism to make a case for, what would it be and why? Oh, I don't know. How long have you got? I need to think about this one. In terms of the show itself, we all had our, our favourite species and our favourite animals, some with their, just for their stupid names, a Darth Vader, giant pill millipede, an arrogant shrew, things like that. But I think a particular species that has stayed with me, just, just thinking in the immediate past, because it's the first thing that sprang to mind, coming back to the British landscape for, for listeners I, i've just been stuck out in brazil during coronavirus and uh, i've just returned to quarantine in wales so i guess i was struck by many things here but actually I, i kind of really connect with the lowly bramble i think it's a really beautiful uh, plant so i would i would make a case for the bramble but out in brazil at least in tropical bahia i was really struck by this incredible little bird which is called a, a beja flor or a flower kisser and it is it's like a little hummingbird uh, but it has the agility and speed and precision of an insect and it basically shoots around and then with exact precision just hovers exactly on the spot sticks its beak into the flower and extracts what it needs to extract when you see them they're just like wow i never knew that a species could move like that it is quite incredible if not s sublime to see an animal moving like that with such agility, speed and beauty. I mean, hummingbirds are amazing. Just incredible birds. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us all about the show and about your process and the way that you approach your work. I think it was a really amazing conversation. Thanks so, so much for having me, guys. Bye, Tom. <laughs> 
that was really cool. I loved hearing from Tom about the ways that he devised these different theater pieces and the way that he approaches thinking about nature and how to communicate about conservation in some ways that I had never really thought about. I was quite struck by the species he chose, this hummingbird, and just the way that he was so focused on the way that it moves and the way that it darts around. And it just made me realize we each have our own filters for what we notice. So for example, he having been maybe embodying these species or thinking about how they moved, personifying them and doing all of this like movement theater. That is one of the things that he zoomed in on and noticed about a species. And I wonder how much that applies to the rest of us. Like we, you know, what our filters would be. For sure. And it was also interesting that the other thing you mentioned uh, were species that had funny names and then you realize that they do sound funny and then suddenly you're more interested in knowing about them, which is also quite curious by itself. But I think another thing that I really enjoyed in this conversation is the concept of giving people freedom to really process information and just giving them that space to reflect on things, but without giving them a strong message or a call to action, which I think is something that we obviously do quite a lot in communication and in the conservation sector. So it was a really interesting take from the more artsy way of doing things, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and I think that having that space kind of allows for maybe these stronger emotions to come out. In some of the ways that we talked to Caroline about these big emotions that can emerge around conservation or eco-anxiety or things like that, in some ways I think that these theatre spaces provide these kind of communal places where people can feel things or like come into contact with certain emotions and process them in, in another way. I think this personal connection was also quite evident in the way he talked about how he collaborates with researchers. So we asked him if he reads scientific papers as source of inspiration, for example. But then he explained that actually, rather than reading papers, he prefers talking with researchers directly. And having stories heard from real people and having that direct connections, I think, gives you a really different take on an issue or a conservation topic in general so that's also something that I picked upon as quite interesting because you can learn so much more by talking to a person instead of just reading a paper. You can get information out of them and you can also understand the context much more easily because they can maybe help you sort through like what's important or what the background of something is and why it maybe feels overwhelming I think the last thing for me is just acknowledging that good theatre is really hard to do. And I think that combining it with conservation is also a real challenge. And I mean, Julia mentioned earlier that I did this improvised comedy show earlier this year, and it was about saving endangered species and conservation. And yeah, like the process of making that just so much thought had to go into it. And I definitely found that when I was watching Tom's show, I was just like, really blown away by how clearly and effectively and emotionally it communicated some of these issues that I tend to engage with intellectually quite often, but maybe not as much in terms of acknowledging their full impact or the, the way that they're happening and the way that can impact all of us. For sure. And the last thing I wanted to touch on is also the dichotomy between science versus art when you're at school. And I think that's something that is really across the board in different countries, because I grew up in France and I also had this, this impression. And I think it's really reducing possibilities for children, you know, having to pick 
so early on you're just burning these bridges and you could just nurture them instead and having some art stuff on the side or you know just having a bit more flexibility in what you could add to your curriculum I think would be really powerful. Historically a lot of great scientists were also great artists and that has been lost in in many ways and I feel very lucky because my schools didn't force me to make that choice. I didn't study in England um, for school or university actually or like most of my school and so that meant that I did have the flexibility to keep studying multiple things that I liked. It's a really good point actually that you make about the fact that it used to be people who were scientists used to be really good at drawing as well because if we look at the Banks and Darwin and Wallace they were all naturalists so they had to make drawings of what they actually encountered on expeditions so it's interesting how it's then got splitted in a way and we kind of lost that connection. Yeah, but not to worry, Julia, we can we can refine it. Brilliant. So that's it for this episode. We hope that you really enjoyed it and we'd love to hear your thoughts or if you want to send us voice notes, you can do this at podcast at conservationoptimism.org. And if you have anything you want to share, you can also use the hashtag conservationoptimism on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. This episode was funded by an ESRC Impact Acceleration account grant through the University of Oxford. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.